it's Nick Austin, and on this edition of the podcast, we're taking a look at the role emerging technologies and especially advancements in things like artificial intelligence play in our lives, how it has the potential to make things better, and why some are concerned. In fact, one area where we've seen concern is labor, as labor feels like it's experiencing a real moment right now. You've got the strike in Hollywood. 170,000 actors and screenwriters striking over a month demanding higher wages and protections around what? The use of artificial intelligence. It has the potential to maybe displace workers. So how do we respond or is there a way to balance these competing interests? Is there a way that emerging technologies like artificial intelligence or in the automotive labor sector, emerging technologies like electronic vehicles, is there a way that we can balance the interest of business, of labor, and of consumers and have all sides win when it comes to these things? It's something that's at the heart of these negotiations, and that's why we sat down to begin our conversation with Merrick Masters to discuss what was at issue with the UAW right now in their negotiations with the big three automakers, set the table and figure out how that fits in, how artificial intelligence might fit in and emerging technologies into these discussions. Merrick, welcome back to Detroit Today. Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, I'm glad you're here. Also, just before we start this conversation, I want to note some WDET journalists are represented by the UAW in the interest of full disclosure. But moving to you, Merrick, uh, with next Thursday being the deadline to ratify a new contract, I think a lot of people would like to know what specifically is the UAW looking for in this negotiation? Well, it's got several demands, which are referred to collectively as the members' demands, that were put forth in a Facebook Live presentation by Sean Fain a few weeks ago. And they include, among other things, a 46% wage increase over four years, the elimination of tiers, the reduction in the use of temporary employees, and also the restoration of certain things such as retiree health care and defined pension, uh, defined benefit pension plans, plus the restoration of the cost of living allowance. Those are the central demands which have gotten the most attention in the media. Yeah, they do get a lot of attention in the media, as does his noting that uh, a combined $21 billion in profits were made by the big three in just the first half of this year, saying that, hey, while labor, big three, while automakers are doing well, if they're receiving record profits, we should be able to receive record contracts. Let's just look at this practically. If the UAW were to get everything that it wanted for its uh, 150,000 members, uh, how much of that $21 billion would it eat up? Well, it'd eat up a good amount of that. Exactly how much would depend on how do you calculate some of the benefits. But I did a back-of-the-envelope calculation of what a 46% wage increase would cost the companies. And over four years, it would cost them about three point six billion dollars <throat> and that amounts to uh, in their 2022 earnings for the whole year that amounts to their profits uh, about 15 uh, percent across the three companies and their net um 
uh, revenues, it amounts to uh, a little over 1% of that. Now, it's important to remember that that is a, a wage increase spread over four years, and I'm just factoring in what the impact would be on one year's of earnings, not four years. Yeah. And, you know, when I think about labor, I think the easiest thing for me to analog- analogize it to is sports. I often follow that. And in my experience, when everybody's making money, they're loath to strike. So one of the questions I have for you, based on what I just heard from those numbers, is if the automakers are doing so well right now, and if union wouldn't be taking up all of those profits, wouldn't this be a great opportunity to get to yes? What is it that the big three are fear, fearful for in this negotiation? Well, I think they're uh, fearful of returning to the past, which got them into so much trouble. <clears throat> and in the past, what happened during the bankruptcy era of 2007 through 2010, which included the Great Recession, which impacted the auto industry severely, they were caught with high fixed labor costs relative to their competitors, the then foreign transplants being their main competitors. Now they have two sets of competitors, not just the foreign transplants, but they also have the domestic electrical vehicle uh, producers. And the cost of electrification, which the companies are pursuing at a very accelerated pace is high. And the cost of capital today because of rising interest rates is high. And therefore, the companies need as much capital as they possibly can amass to invest in electrical vehicles. And that pushes pressure on their ability to concede increases in labor costs. So if I think about this, then, if there's concerns about how labor costs increasing or the unknown could affect things. Isn't there a way that you could create maybe a a tiered, well, I shouldn't say tiered system, but a percentage-based system or something that's locked in on, hey, for X number of profits we make or what have you, this much goes to labor and we just divide it out that way? Well, I think that's an excellent point, Nick. And I think that that's really what the struggle boils down to is what is that point? Um, And I think the union's perspective now reminds me a little bit more of Walter Ruther's perspective, uh, which he advocated in the 1950s and 1960s, which was that labor was entitled to a certain share of the abundance of the company. And it was entitled to that as a matter of right as opposed to just a matter of its ability to struggle it out through a contest of power in a strike. So therefore, I think the question is exactly what is that point at which labor share is fair? There's dispute on that. And I think the more flexible you can be about how you can put money in people's pocketbooks, the better the parties will be in trying to find an agreement. The more you add to the fixed base costs of the workers, and that would be such things as a higher base wage, cost of living index, which goes into your base wage, and also the retiree benefits that go on the liability sheet of the companies. Those things are difficult to absorb. Things that are tied to the variability of the performance of the company, such as profits, 
are that don't go into the base, such as performance bonuses, bonuses rather than a cost of living increase. Those things I think will, the companies will find more amenable, but that still doesn't get you beyond the question of what's the fair share. And that's what the debate boils down to really right now. We're speaking with Merrick Masters, chair of the Department of Finance at Wayne State University. He's also an expert on organized labor. And Merrick, I want to shift into innovation, which is something that's going to be a big theme of today's show. And one of the areas I see this pop up is another point that I saw Sean Frame bring up is the push for a 32-hour work week, which I know has some surprise, but then when I think about John Keynes, you know, I would think about the 20-hour the work week or, or less, right? Like, with as technology increases, we should have to all work less. Is 32-hour work week, would that be a viable solution in this case? Is it something that you think could ever happen? Well, certainly that's a way of promoting job security. You would need more hourly workers to do the work to produce the same number of vehicles. Um, and, you know, it, that would probably just encourage the companies to accelerate the uh, substitution of labor with more capital, with more technology, and actually uh, reduce the need for the number of workers to produce the same amount of output. So I, I think what you're going to see is a continual experimentation with new ways of reducing the need for labor. And that could be affected in some ways by reducing the work week, which would raise the employment level, uh, the number of workers that you would actually need. But I think, you know, more broadly, this raises a work-life balance issue in society. And I think that you know, with the remote work that people experienced and the more flexibility over their um, <clears throat> time and the allocation of it during the pandemic, I think people have rethought uh, that work-life balance and are beginning to look for ways of spending more quality time with their families and engaging in other pursuits that make life so worthwhile. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, a lot of times we used to say you could throw money at a problem uh, when there was an issue to get more workers in. But now we see a, a push, at least this is what I'm seeing anecdotally from friends about caring about that work-life balance. And one of the things that you mentioned is that it might increase the push as if they were to go to a 32-hour work week, for example, to try to have more automation, to have more technological advancements is the rise of artificial intelligence, innovation, is that something that has the UAW concerned right now? How much is it well, coming I up think, in negotiation? You know, Go ahead. Uh, it, the UAW has always been concerned about the role of technology in replacing workers. And, and in fact, Walter Ruther said that uh, one of the key challenges facing labor was its ability to work with the companies to harness the opportunities created by advanced technology. And I think what labor wants and what Sean Fain wants when he says he wants a fair and just electrification is he wants labor to have a place at the table to make certain that its role is protected in that transition. Likewise, when you go to other forms of uh, substitution of labor with capital, such as the use of artificial intelligence and various other kinds of technologies that might reduce the need for for labor, human labor, then I think you're going to see that experimentation, um, that those opportunities explored in a lot more detail. I think we've got to get 
uh, beyond the notion, like what is so magical about a 40 hour work week? I know people yeah. say, well, you work, you work more, but you know, what, what's the nature of the job? There are certain jobs where it's very hard to work this number of hours in a given day uh, without diminishing returns. Uh, and I think that we need to think a little bit more about, I'd rather have people working uh, a certain amount of time in which they're productive for most of that time than have, have them work for a certain designated time period uh, in which many of those hours are not productive because they just can't do the job. Yeah. You know, Merrick, um, I think you're dead right there. Um, why? I think it's jealousy, Merrick. I think it's when I have to work 40 hours and I look across and you're only working 32 get a little salty I'm like why why am i well i mean I, I think it's comparison people yeah. make the kind of comparison and you know we, we just i i can't tell you the number of people i've seen in offices and you know i've been working for i started working when i was 17 and that's 50 over 50 years ago yeah and i can't tell you and i've worked in offices i've worked in you know from a bus boy to you know all kinds of jobs um, and I've seen so many jobs in which people sit around and really don't do a whole lot. <laughs> right. And, you know, you got to ask yourself, I mean, what are we paying these people here for? Uh, wouldn't it be better to use their time more wisely? Um, yeah. And, you know, but, you know, we're so fixed on doing everything by, you know, pigeonholing ourselves into a number that we can't get away from it. Yeah. You know, I think you're right there. And going off of this idea of innovation, uh, I decided to ask an expert in innovation about um, the concerns of uh, automation. I went to chat GPT. I asked artificial intelligence to tell me what some of the strengths and weaknesses of uh, of labor concerns that they would have about innovation. It gave me a nice list. It was pretty cool here. But it also said it's crucial to note that the impact of technology on organized labor is multifaceted and the line between helping and hurting can often be blurred. For example, while automation might lead to job losses, it can also result in safer working conditions by eliminating hazardous tasks. It went on to give me other reasons on why we shouldn't be so harsh on automation. So I like ChatGPT uh, supporting its own artificial intelligence. But this does actually bring up a good question because I think a lot of proponents would say advances in technology actually help workers. It does make places safer. It does allow for less work. So how do we best balance the concern labor has with their jobs, with the uh, advancements actually creating safer, better work environments for people? Well, I think you have to start from the premise that you you don't want to stop advances in technology. You don't want to put the brakes on it and say, for example, uh, AI is going to take over the role of humans in the world, and therefore we need to put the brakes on it. I think that would be disadvantageous, and I don't think it's doable to begin with. I think what you want to do is allow for the exploration of technology innovation to occur and then work on the details of where it can be applied to benefit people the most. And I think that collective bargaining is a means by which you can do that. I mean, that's when employers and employees sit down at a table across from each other and discuss you know, how these things can play a role in the workplace, how we can take advantage of technology to optimize our performance, but at the same time not make workers suffer or make them worse off and provide for more higher value added 
that workers can do, uh, whether it's in terms of, you know, just the sheer um, volume of work that they do is more impactful uh, and the nature of their work becomes more complicated and of more higher value because of that. So it's going to be a difficult struggle. Um, And there's always going to be that tension. I look at the writer's strike and the screen actors, as you opened the show with when you talked about them at the beginning, that's a big issue because, you know, you could go to AI and say, write me a script for this um, kind of scenario. And you could have the first draft of your um, play written. Yeah. Uh, and you know, you, then you don't need a writer for the first draft, but you may need. You're going to need the writers for editing, uh, you know, adapting it, and accounting for all the nuances and mistakes that might be made in AI. And it will make mistakes. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But I mean, we're going to have to figure our way through this. There's no easy solution, and it never has been easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you, AI. I inspired by Chris Hayes. I did ask it to write me also. A comedy stand-up script in the voice of uh, Ulysses S. Grant. It was terrible, but he tried. Uh, you well, know, so we'll I, get I mean, there I, one day. I wouldn't mind hearing that myself. <laughs> I mean, that'd be kind of interesting. I'll <laughs> send it to you. But we're gonna let you go, real. But real quick, I do have one question for you. It's from Jack on Twitter. He asks, "What is the tiered wage system, and why is this bad for auto workers? Or I should say, why well, do auto workers believe it's bad for them? Go ahead." His- Historically, the, when it, the tiers started, it was that they had a lower set of rates for people that were new hires in 2007 compared to those legacy employees. Now, I think the tiers focus mainly on just the progression that it takes, the different levels that it takes to get to the highest rate. And what the UAW wants is to reduce the number of steps that it takes to get from the entry rate to the highest rate. Uh, and that's what the struggle is about now. Um, when they talk about tears. All right. Well, we're going to keep you in the Rolodex because as this negotiation plays on, I know we're going to need some more expertise. So Merrick Masters of Wayne State University. Pleasure being with you, Nick. You take care. Have a good day. You as well. When we continue on Detroit Today, we're going to get into the idea of creative destruction. We're going to take a look more at how innovation affects our economy and labor and business when we return on Detroit Today. It's Detroit Today. I'm Nick Austin in for Steven Henderson. We're talking about innovation and the role it plays not only in our work lives, also a little bit later, how it can be affecting directly our leisure, maybe our ability to get around when we talk to the city of Detroit's uh, chief mobility officer. But that will happen a little bit later. Right now, we want to get an idea of where innovation, the role it plays in our work lives, in labor, in the rising economy, and our relationships with it as people. It centers around this idea of creative destruction, which is this idea that as technology increases, as we get, move forward with innovation, it should have benefits for all of society. But I think in our current climate, some workers would tell you that they're concerned about this, the specter of losing their jobs, the specter of not having a place in that advancing economy. So how do we balance these competing ideals? That's why we bring on our next guest, which is Daryl West, the senior fellow in the Center for Technology Innovation within the Governance Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. Daryl, welcome to Detroit Today. 
Thank you, Nick. It's nice to be with you. Hey, it's nice to have you here also because I think this is something that has people concerned, and it's had folks concerned for ages. I think the overriding point, and you've written a lot about the transition from the industrial to digital economy, can innovation help businesses and workers at the same time? Ideally, it should be able to help workers and businesses. But of course, right now we're seeing a lot of automation uh, come into a lot of different sectors and certainly the automotive sector, which I know is very important in Detroit, is seeing a lot of AI and robotics uh, that is changing the life of workers on the factory uh, line. So I think a lot of people are concerned now that the balance has tilted in favor of businesses away from workers and that they're gonna be lost jobs. They're gonna be factory workers who see robots do the things that they've been doing for a number of years. And so we do have to be careful during this transition to a digital economy that there are not workers who end up getting left behind. Yeah. And so how exactly do we do that? Because it says it right here. If you're someone who's grown up, if you're 40, 50, you've worked in the industrial economy and you might lose your job or it gets downsized, you're not used to the wages uh, or you don't have the opportunity to make the wages you used to, transitioning to digital might be difficult, as I can see from some of the older folks in my life attempting to use a computer and calling me probably right now to help them out. So my question for you, Daryl, is how do we protect against that? How do we help transition those folks into the digital economy? I mean, the good news is there are jobs that are going to be lost to automation, but there also are gonna be new jobs created. The challenge is making sure that the workers who may be losing their jobs have the skills that will qualify them for the new jobs. So for example, in the digital economy, there are lots of new jobs related to data analytics. You know, digital platforms create all sorts of data that then can be used to analyze uh, make operations perform uh, more efficiently. The challenge now is that many workers who are likely to lose their jobs do not have the skills for those new types of jobs. And so the thing we need to do is take professional development more seriously, uh, engage in job retraining so that those people who might not have the skills now uh, could after, let's say, six to 12 months of training, have the skills for those new jobs. And so we need to do a much better job of helping those workers make that transition and upskilling their current level so that they can qualify for those new jobs. Well, what role would the federal government or state and local governments play in this, right? Could We could think of things like maybe a jobs guarantee. We could think of maybe a universal basic income to be a backstop for people or maybe a way to supplement a person who was making a certain wage but is unable to make that because they lost their job, maybe get them back up to that level. What role would you see the government playing as in helping uh, get that person, get someone else trained into a new position? There are roles both for government and business at every level in this uh, transition. And certainly at the state and local level, like most communities have workforce development commissions uh, who are providing job retraining opportunities. There have been complaints that those opportunities often are not geared to the needs of the private sector. So people come out of them with certain types of skills, but they're not always the skills that businesses need. So we need much better cooperation between government and business so that in those job retraining programs, they actually are producing the skills that businesses need. So improving communications uh, there would be important, uh, providing some type of support during that time period when people might have lost a job and have not yet acquired 
the new job. So there is transition money that uh, government agencies now make available to help uh, people. So those are the types of things that I think we need to uh, think more about and do a better job of providing uh, those types of benefits. We're speaking with Daryl West, the senior fellow in the Center for Technology Innovation within the Governance Studies programs at the Brookings Institution. But we also want to speak with you. You can give us a call 313-577-1019. Are you someone who is concerned about the rise of artificial intelligence, the rise of technological advancements and what it might mean for your job? Do you think it's a good thing for us globally? Why or why not? And how do you think labor or the government or the private sector should respond to these technological advancements? Give us a call again, 313-577-1019, and we can work you into the conversation. Uh, We want to learn more about your thoughts here, maybe even questions that you have for my guest, Daryl West. And I want to move into a little bit of more of something that you mentioned there about training in areas where people actually need it or the private sector being concerned about that. Politicians often go back and forth advocating for higher education uh, and saying that a trades job is just fine without a bachelor's as well. You can hear get higher education. No, trades are okay. Do you think politicians should be leading into the former or latter ideology or do you think it should just be staying out of it? Where do you think politicians should land on this? Well, we definitely need more tradespeople in virtually every urban area across America. I know in Washington, D.C., where I'm based, it's hard to find plumbers, electricians. Uh, businesses say they have difficulty finding welders and other uh, people who have uh, specialized skills. So we definitely need to invest in those areas to make sure that uh, the automotive sector, as well as other areas, have the workers that they uh, need. I think one of the thing about uh, job losses that a lot of people don't appreciate is they think it's only entry-level workers who are going to be affected by this. But increasingly, we're seeing that white-collar workers also are being affected because the AI and data analytics are getting better. And so people who supervise are finding that there can be online analytics that track how people are doing their jobs and that we don't necessarily need human supervisors in the way that we did before. And so when we're thinking about job retraining, we need to think not just about kind of the entry level people who are going to be affected, although obviously that's very important and very critical, but they're also going to be mid-level and professional level jobs that are affected by automation. Yeah, you know, Daryl, you've written several books, including The Future of Work, Robots, AI, and Automation, as well as Mecha Change, Economic Disruption, Political Upheaval, and Social Strife in the 21st Century. As we discuss how innovation plays out in our work sector, were there any things that you came across in creating these books that kind of surprised you about the topic that you weren't expecting to find out that people would find interesting? I mean, the most surprising thing is how rapidly technology innovation is moving ahead. COVID accelerated a lot of those trends in the sense that everybody had to adjust very quickly to online education, uh, remote work, uh, telemedicine, uh, e-commerce, and other uh, digital uh, products. Uh, And even though that pandemic has receded, many of the tech innovations that were instigated by the pandemic are likely to become a more permanent force. And so I think people need to appreciate that innovation is leaping ahead and the world even two to three years from now is going to look dramatically different 
the workplace is going to look very different. Uh, the old idea of investing in education up through age 25 and then you know people not worrying so much is completely outmoded. People are going to have to reinvest in their uh, job skills at ages 30, 40, 50, and 60, virtually throughout uh, their adult uh, lifetime. And so people are going to have to uh, think about how to gain those new skills. It could be taking online programs, uh, certificate uh, programs. I mean, there are lots of businesses out there that are actually providing uh, professional development for their employees. So when people are thinking about uh, uh, jobs, they should be asking their employers, like, what types of professional development opportunities do you provide? And do you pay for those? Uh, yeah. So I think those are things that would really help people in this transition to a digital economy. All right, Daryl, I appreciate a lot of this. I have to imagine there's people listening, though, who are pulling their hair out, because a lot of what I'm hearing is shifting so much of the responsibility onto the individual, onto the worker. And meanwhile, a lot of this is for the benefit of these private industries. I don't know if you how much of the uh, earlier segment that you heard, but for example, the big three, uh, Sean Fain, UAW president, noted that they earned a combined $21 billion in profits for the first half of this year and are still locked in a labor negotiation. They feel it's proper that if the labor who helped you get to that point uh, uh, should be able to also partake in some of those benefits. And everything I'm hearing here, I'm not hearing a responsibility from the private sector. What onus do you have on the private sector in order to uh, also ensure that uh, that workers have a good opportunity or that uh, the, the transition to the digital economy also works for workers? Uh, you're exactly right on all those points. Like the private sector has to step up and do its share. As you point out, many companies are earning billions of dollars. They need to share uh, those uh, benefits with their workers who make that kind of prosperity possible. I think in contract negotiations, people are worried about automation and AI and robots. So that's a legitimate uh, fear. And so in those negotiations, they need to be uh, thinking about how those trends are affecting their particular uh, sector and what types of protections they can have. They certainly should be insisting on much better job retraining programs that the employer finances. So the individual employee does not have to pay for those online courses themselves. I think smart companies are now investing in their workers. They understand it's hard to recruit uh, workers. There's mm. been a lot of transition over the last uh, few years. And so if you invest in your workers, you're going to end up in a better workforce, a happier workforce, and a better trained workforce that will benefit both uh, employees and employers. Yeah, it could. But here we also have, we have uh, states fighting against each other with right to work states. I know this is something we've dealt with in Michigan, a race to the bottom. Uh, even if a happier worker, let's say, creates a better product, if it's only, I'm pulling a number out of from air, but you know, five, 10% better, but you can have cost savings with the inferior product, uh, then that might incentivize businesses to not invest in those areas because they could still turn a profit, maybe a better one by operating cheaper. I also think of things like um, right now, uh, 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 consolidation, right, is there's less businesses, it's it's harder for uh, workers to have negotiation power, and even the work to break down unions. So I'm bringing up all these factors to wonder the private sector isn't necessarily going to do it itself. They have the obligations to their shareholders, make profits number one. So 
what role should the government play in maybe creating some guardrails to protect these businesses from themselves to ensure the issues that you mentioned and ensure that those profits are getting shared with labor? Go ahead. Well, this is what elections are all about. Like <laughs> all those issues you just mentioned are should be part of the public debate uh, leading uh, up until the 2024 elections, because a lot of the bad policies that result in a race to the bottom are the result of elections. If people aren't voting, if they're not expressing their views, if they're not active in trying to push for fairer policies, then you're going to end up with exactly kind of the litany of uh, problems that you just identified. Our goal should be not a race to the bottom, but a race to the top. There's a lot of competition between cities uh, and among uh, states, but we should be competing for uh, better trained workers, happier workers, a fair social contract, so uh, benefits are more evenly distributed uh, than they are uh, right now. And so the 2024 election is really the Super Bowl. You know, there are very important choices uh, that uh, people are going to uh, make. And Michigan is on the front lines of a lot of those discussions. One more question for you. Uh, you're an economist, so you love Keynes. Why don't we have a 32-hour work week or lower? Would you advocate for it? Should it work? I don't think we're going to end up with a 32-hour uh, work week anytime soon, but we could end up with a 36-hour uh, work week. A lot of employers have moved towards more flex flexible work arrangements uh, based on uh, COVID. They have hybrid uh, work models where some people uh, are able to work from home part of the time. That creates more flexibility. Uh, people might be able to take Friday afternoons off. Uh, so I do think that one idea that is percolating, you know, if there are going to be job losses, one way to mitigate that is if you shorten the work week, then it actually might create uh, more uh, jobs. So uh, that's an idea that uh, people are talking about. Uh, universal basic income, which you mentioned earlier, is a possibility. So there are actually lots of uh, new ideas uh, that uh, are arising around the country. The key thing is we need to start testing those ideas and figure out which are the ones that actually are going to work. Well, I know I only have so much time with you. I don't want to overwork you, Daryl. I don't want you to think that I'm one of those people that's extracting too much resources. So we're going to leave you this time, but you got to make sure to come back and join us again on Detroit Today. Thank you very much, Nick. Thank you again, Daryl West, Senior Fellow at the Center for Technology Innovation within the Governance Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. When we return, we're going to take a look at how innovation may be benefiting Metro Detroit very soon. Autonomous vehicles could be coming to a neighborhood near you. How would the program work? We'll find out next on Detroit Today. I'm Nick Austin in for Stephen Henderson on Detroit Today with you. And one of the things happening in Detroit, as we've been talking a lot about innovation, how folks are concerned with how it might disrupt their lives specifically in relation to things like uh, 
their jobs. It's also has the potential to potentially help us out, right, in other areas of our lives, including in transportation. Mobility and transportation are something that's very important, I know, to us here in the Motor City. And one of the pilot programs that exists right now is coming off out of the city of Detroit's uh, Mobility and Innovation Department. I'm talking about a self-driving shuttle pilot that will be occurring. To learn more about that, as well as other things that the city of Detroit is working on in the world of mobility innovation, we're joined by Tony Giara, who is the Deputy Chief of Mobility Innovation for the city of Detroit. Tony, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Yeah, it's great to have you in here because the first question I have for you is what does the city of Detroit's Office of Mobility and Innovation actually do? We do all the fun stuff. Okay. Like I think that's the easiest way to uh, to summarize it. We're looking at how are we going to be moving around, not today, but 10, 20, 30 years down the road and setting up the ecosystem for that. So whether that means uh, relationship with uh, with other partners, uh, private, public entities, and even within the, the organization itself, like the city, we need to ensure that our departments are future ready and um, aware of what's happening and they've tested things out. They've rolled up their sleeves and seen what is technology going to mean um, 10 years down the road, even 50 years down the road, mm-hmm. and what do we need to do today to get ready for that? Yeah, and you know, I think a lot of people would be excited about potentially being on the front line of something. So let's just start with the basics of this pilot program that I've been discussing. What is it that you guys are planning on rolling out? So that's, that's a good question. Um, when we first applied for the grant about um, four years ago, again, these things take a long time, contracting, et cetera. We saw a need for um, serving a group of our residents that tend to have mobility barriers, being able to move around and be able to enjoy their quality of life. And what we ended up doing was um, we saw an opportunity saying, let's combine future mobility, which is self-driving technology that was really kind of, it was the hot topic four years ago. Right now, people are just taking a step back and saying, hey, let's see how things are going. <laughs> That's right. But we're not the only ones doing this. So we applied, we won, and we wanted to kind of support older adults and people with disabilities and be able to kind of say, what does it take to be able to give you that autonomy to be able to go make these decisions in a vehicle that would have its own driving abilities and be able to improve your quality of life. All right. So we're talking about self-driving cars that would uh, be eligible for residents who are older and have mobility issues, disabled. They'd be eligible for this pilot program, which I believe starts next year. Is that So the actual deployment would be June of 2024, right. for sure. Um, and we needed to focus the geography and um, the the people that qualify within there just so that we could have a successful pilot and be able to ensure things. But the power of what we're doing here is the fact that we're actually allowing Detroiters and a, a subset of, of Detroiters of our residents to be able to have a voice in what this actual shuttle service, what this actual service would look like and customizing it on every single level. So the project, if it was just kind of, hey, we just acquire a self-driving shuttle and put it out there, that's easy. But we wanted to kind of go in, test the safety off track, like uh, on a track off site, being able to kind of dig in and make sure that it's, it's safe. And then the other part that I failed to mention earlier is that we will have a safety driver right. behind the wheel. I, <laughs> I know everyone's kind of worried about I, that. I was going to bring it up if you did. <laughs> Don't worry. It's good. It was the number one question. And even in our survey, um, one of the uh, the barrier breakers for um, our 
for our residents was ensuring that there was uh, safety was number one on every single level, and that also meant having someone behind the wheel. Yeah. But we also wanted to ensure that um, the service was useful, practical, made sense, and it was Detroit. Uh, it's it's very easy for us to go and get something from uh, San Francisco and just kind of apply it here. Wouldn't recommend doing that right now. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> They're having trouble over at San Francisco with their system. Hopefully it works a little bit better Absolutely. here right now. But one of the questions that I have for you then is it does have a limited population for the reasons you mentioned. But what are the unique and specific issues that these residents, those with mobility concerns, older, uh, disabled, have that you believe autonomous vehicles are uniquely set up to help? That is a great question. Um, one of the big things that uh, we've heard time and time again was the ability to go and attend appointments, do your grocery shopping's everyday needs without the, the support of someone else. Because um, many of uh, uh, the people that fall within um, those those categories cannot drive themselves. Some can, and uh, during our interviews, um, many of them, uh, you know, Mrs. Jones, she's like, I can drive, and uh, I can drive on, on the local roads. I need something that can go 70 miles an hour on the freeway. I was like, oh, uh, yeah. let's hold a second on that. <laughs> but it's these pilots that would allow us to kind of sift through what is what is the art of the possible. So what, what we heard is we want to be able to get to doctor's appointments, sometimes with or without a caregiver. Um, sometimes we may have a, uh, a service pet with us. Um, some, some of us are in a wheelchair. We want to be able to be on a vehicle. We want to be informed about the trip before it arrives and what's happening on the trip itself. And what we I did as part of this first part of the engagement was we set up a, a bunch of uh, fundamental truths, like basic fundamental elements that would make the service a success and on time. And that was the thing. Like they wanted... Every, we kept on hearing it. We want something that is reliable and is on time, and I can book it not days in advance, but you know, hours if not like minutes in advance, and be able to complete my trip. Yeah, you know, it does seem like this is something that can help out with the need. We've all heard about the struggles that this population certainly has, and I know we have people personally that we know in terms of mobility. And you know, the city of Detroit did have some issues with a program that they have that exists right now to help out the disabled. A question I would have, and I, I think some people might look at this and say, hey, look, if you've got a safety driver in the vehicle already, why don't you just make use the money to make a program with a person in a car and just do the same thing with the auto, without the autonomous vehicle? Absolutely. So what I wanted to kind of uh, maybe highlight is that the city of Detroit took advantage of a federally funded uh, a federal grant that was made available for innovation. So we are using these funds that are very much earmarked for these purposes for us to come and say, let's see what this means for the city of Detroit uh, today and in the future. So you're right. Um, of course, if we just had put someone behind the wheel, uh, that would have maybe filled in a gap. But we're not trying to resolve, let's say, um, paratransit. We're trying to kind of see where are the opportunities to make this better. Some things we do know. But many things we don't. And this is why engagement is at the at the heart of what we're doing here today. We're always engaging with the different uh, grassroots organizations, the um, the general public, and even the entities that help with, with some of the movements, such as DDOT and, and other entities. Right. We're speaking with uh, Tony Giara, who is the Deputy Chief of Mobility Innovation for the City of Detroit, talking about Detroit's self-driving shuttle pilot. Tony, I've got to believe that somebody at some point has said to you, wait a second, this sounds like they're just taking the 
the least capable of us, the most easily exploited in experimenting with them. Which sounds kind of cruel. I mean, but to the extent that someone is asking, why is it this population that you're putting in these experimental cars and not another population? What's your response to that? Um, so this is a great question. And the, the program is an opt-in program. So you get the option if you're interested in, in opting in. And uh, I would encourage everyone to check out our, our landing page, uh, just uh, research uh, self-driving Detroit, and you can, you can look it up. There's a lot of information there. And shortly, we're going to be putting out a, uh, uh, a sign-up form, uh, you know, expression of interest. And the idea is we want to be able to help people resolve issues that we've identified, that we've heard from the community. It wasn't a, uh, a solution that we came up with. It was through engagement, through, through surveys and through questions and that we've heard time and time again. And we wanted to kind of ensure that we did that in a way that maintain the dignity of, of whoever is using the vehicle and allow to add some value to it. So I, I, the easiest thing would have been to just kind of put out a, a shuttle for a couple of months, meet the grant requirements. We wanted to ensure it was a full year deployment. Um, it was well done in a way that met the requirements of, of the, the residents. And it was customized for, for the residents as well. Because otherwise, it's very hard to come, to come uh, if you weren't funded for these projects, to come and say, uh, to ask the actual questions like, what do you want in a service and how can we resolve this? Keep in mind that there are other underserved riders out there. There's right. the 14 to 18 year olds. There's no, no vehicle households. We have those in mind. We have ideas and we want to kind of go in that route. We're actually doing some engagement in that, on that now. But um, this is a program for Detroiters, by Detroiters. We're even hiring, as part of the program, uh, drivers and, and technicians that are from Detroit itself through our, of course, our contractor main mobility. So we're super excited about this. That's good. I want to get back to that in a moment. But in terms of metrics for success with this program, what are those? What will a successful program look like? What are you measuring? Awesome. Awesome. So I do want to mention that we have an amazing A-team. I'm so proud of our team that that's on this project. We have the University of Michigan, Wayne State University, you know, um, that's awesome. We have Deloitte, uh, Ford, um, and uh, a number of others such as MDOT and MEDC all working together to make this a success. We have something called a uh, data management plan and project evaluation plan. And in that, we've identified like, how do we want to actually measure success? Things came up, things like, oh, uh, uh, how many rides did we do, etc. And then we heard things like, can you measure how long did I wait before my car showed up? How many repeat riders did we have? Um, the level of satisfaction of the riders themselves, and did we actually help resolve a mobility gap that does exist today? And can we push this along to be for it to be sustainable and expandable? Um, you know, scaled up with time. Yeah, you seem to be very proud, by the way, of the Detroiters hired. What percentage of Detroiters are going to be hired into this project? So we, we will have three shuttles that will be serving two footprints within Detroit. And for those three shuttles, you need um, drivers, uh, and essentially safety drivers. They're, not, they're only taking over in places that is um, non-traditional or if there's a, an emergency. You have technicians and you have probably a team leader of some sort. So we're thinking somewhere around eight to 10 people for the course of the, the year deployment. And these are Detroiters that are getting trained and getting exposure to futuristic technology that mm. otherwise would not be there. Yeah. So, um, you know, you're just building on the on the skills that uh, that are out there. Right. I want to slide a call in here. Dominic in Detroit, you're on Detroit today. Got a little bit of time. So be a little quick with it, please. Hi. Yeah. Thanks for taking my call. Hey, Dominic. I'm curious about what companies are 
collecting and kind of using the data and how is it uh, being used to create new technologies? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I appreciate it. Go ahead, Tony. So data is one of the most important and most critical element of any current and futuristic project because you want to ensure the safety and security. And at the city of Detroit, uh, we put a lot of very hard uh, constraints around that so that it's it's very uh you know, access to it is controlled contractually and uh, physically, you know, wherever it's actually being stored. And remember, these are like terabytes and terabytes of of data that will be saved for, you know, for a short period of time. So what we ended up doing is we ended up putting very strict constraints contractually, etc. However, because this is a federal grant and we want innovation to be at the heart of it, we've actually said that we're going to be taking some of the LIDAR, etc., non-PII, nothing personally identifiable information, that will be made available to universities and research institutions to be able to improve upon, um, you know, autonomy or self-driving yeah. t- technology. So it's a it's a combination. So we did our due diligence in ensuring that the data is safe, but we're also kind of ensuring that there's a, a set that is available uh, for future um, innovation. Yeah, I got like 15 seconds, but right. just to confirm, because data is important to me. Also, this is opt-in purely, and no personally identified information is going to anybody in this. Is that right? Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, just go to our site, uh, Self Driving Detroit. Just uh, Google it, check it out, and reach out to me. My contact information is on there. I love kind of hearing all the great stories and challenges that we have out there to solve them. Tony Giara, City of Detroit, thank you so much for joining us on Detroit Today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. That's going to do it for this edition of the podcast. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Program director is Adam Fox. The technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. The Detroit Today podcast is edited by Jack Philbrick. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to share it with your friends.